Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, this is Season 5, Episode Number 11 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with performance nutritionist Dr. James Moorhead. James is a performance nutritionist with a research background in rugby league. He's been working with the English Football Association over the last four years and now consults with athletes across numerous sports, currently serving as the head of performance nutrition for the Bristol Bears rugby team. We're going to be talking about his recent work with professional boxer Rocky Fielding over the last five years. His new role as the head of performance nutrition for the Bristol Bears and his new book, Performance Nutrition, where he shares insights from some of the leaders in the field and some of the things that he's learned in those conversations. Before we get rolling, this episode is sponsored by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, and practitioners looking to level up their performance nutrition game, expand the breadth of their knowledge, and make the biggest impact with their athletes. Athlete Evo is excited to announce the new basketball performance nutrition course is set to launch in January 2022 with expert course lead, former sport dietitian for the NBA's Atlanta Hawks, Marie Spano, leading the way, as well as sports scientist at Barcelona FC basketball, Frank Garcia, along with modules on mental performance, live guest speakers, and much, much more. So you can earn CEU credits as well with the NSCA and take advantage of the early bird special to save 50% off the course. Just head over to athleteevolution.org. Use the promo code basketball to save 50% off. That's athleteevolution.org. Use the promo code basketball to save 50% off. Awesome. Let's do this season five, episode number 11 with Dr. James Morhan, PhD. Enjoy. James, appreciate you taking the time today. All good, all good. Thanks for having me back on. It's, uh, I think it's been over a year or so, isn't it, since we last spoke? Yeah, man, it's been a couple of years. So season three, we talked all things rugby, which we might circle back to today. Um, but in today's discussion, before we actually jump in, maybe give uh, viewers, listeners a little whirlwind tour of your background and then we can tee things up for today. Yeah, cool. So as quick as possible, 18 to 21, traveled the world, had no ambition of university at all. Um, 21 decided to go and get an academic career. So I then ventured up to Liverpool in the northwest of England um, and yeah, started my undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science, rolled straight on to a master's in sports physiology and then was lucky to start a very applied PhD in, in body composition, applied physiology and, and nutrition with professional rugby league players. So that was sponsored by a couple of pro clubs over here. Um, and then, yeah, did that for four and a half years in total. Um, finally graduated with a PhD. And then in that period of time, kind of did loads of different applied projects with different clubs and athletes, um, kind of built up my, I guess what I would term craft knowledge and craft experience of, of being in the trenches. Um, and then my full first time employed role outside of the PhD was then with England football at the FA. So I had four years there as a performance nutritionist working within a very good department, um, very good colleagues, 
thoroughly enjoyed my time, but it was um, more recently kind of had the urge and the itch to get back into, into rugby. So I've recently started a role at uh, Bristol Bears Rugby Union. So they're now based in the southwest of England. Um, and yeah, I've been, yeah, been there eight weeks and, and thoroughly enjoying it. So Fantastic. Well, listen, we're going to circle back to the rugby side of things towards the end of the, uh, the interview here today. Yeah, let's let's kick things off on, on the boxing side of things. You obviously work uh, tremendously in 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 boxing, and you know recently completed the paper of a five year journey of one of the fighters that you work with, which is pretty fascinating. And the idea of of weight cycling is obviously commonplace in in weight making sports like boxing. But can you kick off the conversation here by talking about just you know weight cycling in the general population? You know what is that? look like what are some of the risk factors and then when we, we come over to the sports side of things i mean it's obviously entrenched in, in being in having to make weight to 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 compete right yeah yeah so look i guess first and foremost what, what is weight cycling it, it's what it says on the tin in a way and, and i guess what i mean by that is we we've probably all been there to some capacity where it might be a holiday that we've booked or there might have been something traumatic in the family that's happened that's resulted in a load of binge eating or, or whatever. But most people that I've worked with, athletes and, and non-athletes, they have fluctuated weight uh, to some capacity. And the fluctuation in weight is typically a change in like lean mass, but more so it's probably a change in fat mass as well. So I've got boxers that I've worked with, I've, you know, other combat sport athletes that they would have a gain in fat mass at some period of that 12 week or 12 month year. Um, and then if they've got a fight kind of lined up, they, they then need to get in shape again to make sure that they can get on the scale and they're, and they're in a presentable place to fight. And, you know, I, I've been there myself. You've, you've got a holiday booked in eight weeks and you're not happy with how you look. And so you go on a very, clean kind of nutritional plan for eight weeks and you train hard and you get yourself into great shape and then after that you've kind of got the motivation of zero because we're in the winter months in the northern hemisphere and people feel a bit sorry for themselves and then they hibernate yeah they hibernate over christmas we eat loads and then we hit the new year and, and everyone wants to get back in shape again so i guess the, the weight cycling in simple terms is just that that increase and decrease in in body mass but a lot of the time it's an accumulation and a decrease in fat mass as well depending on where you are in that kind of um exercise and and nutrition regime i guess yeah for sure and i you know in the general population we obviously see as people's weights tend to fluctuate up and down quite a bit we see increased risk of obesity and you know cardiovascular diseases metabolic diseases we don't tend to think of those things when we think of athletes because we just think athletes are going to be obviously lean fit Maybe we can start with, with another definition before we get into sort of retirement side or the later stages of an athlete's career. But, you know, what is fat overshooting when we talk about this idea of um, having to make weight and get leaner to make weight? Yeah, so it, it, it was a really interesting kind of concept that we were reading in the literature. And I guess what, what we were finding um, when we were looking at the literature was that there was a clear... Um, I guess not not this definition, but it was a there was an amount of evidence that was showing that when individuals um, decrease their fat mass to try and make weight, 
what inevitably happens with that, and this is what we showed with, with the, the data with Rocky, is that because you've got an athlete that might be expending three, three and a half thousand calories a day, but they're not consuming three or three and a half thousand calories a day because they're actively trying to make a weight, then energy balance is obviously in a, in a negative. And so we're, we are losing weight. But one of the knock-on side effects of that is that some athletes, not all athletes, but in the situation with Rocky, there, there is an element of um, muscle wastage and kind of we, we enter that stage of catabolism. And so because we haven't got the calories to kind of look after that muscle, yes, we, we are dropping fat mass because we're in that negative energy balance, but we're also doing it at the expense of dropping a little bit of lean mass. Now, what was really interesting is that you, you then have an athlete that might present on the scale and they've made the weight, which is great because they can now fight. They haven't lost their purse. If it's a title fight, the belts are still on the line. So it's all hunky-dory on that side of things. But then when they then finish the fight and they go back into living a life like a normal Western person would, and you know they go out and they have dinner, they might have a beer or whatever they want to do in their social circles. Especially after eight or 12 week intense camp, you want to loosen yeah. the reins a little bit, right? Right. And there's always an element of cravings for something. Okay. So when they then go back into the realm of energy balance, you could argue that it's almost gone too much the other way. And, and what we were seeing from some of the literature and with Rocky is that you get this, what they're terming colossal fattening. And, and what it essentially means is that the accumulation of fat mass is happening quicker than the accumulation of lean mass back, back to baseline, back to its kind of normal happy place where it was at the start of the camp. And every time that happens, weight cycling episode to the next episode, that accumulation of fat mass appears to get a little bit worse. And so they, that's why they termed it in the literature as this colossal fattening. And, and we've got some retired boxers in the UK here. I, I won't name names just for because it would be a bit rude, but there's um, there's retired boxers here in the UK who, you know, when they were competing and making weight, they were in great shape. When they were not in a camp, they used to balloon very heavily. Now that they're retired, they're, they're in a very sorry state and they are what we would probably term clinically obese. And, and then, as you mentioned earlier, Mark, it, it brings in all of the wrath of, okay, well, what's the problem of that now? at 40 years old or 45 in terms of cardiometabolic disease, obesity, atherosclerosis, heart problems. Um, and so that's one of the problems of the weight cycling. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, once we start getting into this chronically elevated blood sugars and blood pressures going up and chronic inflammations going up, I mean, we're getting into a whole raft of problems, not just physical, but as they dovetail even into mental health, which obviously in the back end of a boxing career is, is already taken a bit of a toll as well. Um, yeah. If we circle back, I mean, this is from your, you know, your recent paper, five-year analysis of weight cycling practices in male world champion professional boxer, potential implications for obesity and cardiometabolic disease. Could you just circle back and tee up again, the span of that sort of five years and, and the, you know, how many fights you were looking at with this individual? Yeah. So the, the anyone who's followed me on social media, the, the individual, and he won't mind me saying, but it's Rocky Fielding from, mm -hmm. from Liverpool and, I guess we were really fortunate that we we had an athlete that was 100% brought into the fact that we were going to collect some data and we were going to do some research on him. He he knew the benefit of it. Um, he he knew 
kind of um, how it could help him and how we could improve the the weight making strategies from some of his previous kind of methods that he used. Um, and so Rocky brought into the process and, and overall we managed to track Rocky for 11 contests. So this was 11 professional registered boxing fights and, and that was over a five year period. Um, in there, there was a British title win, there was a Commonwealth title win, and then he won the regular world title over in Germany against Tyrone Zoiga. And then that was the belt that he then defended in his final 11th contest against um, none other than Canelo at Madison Square Garden in New York. Yeah, amazing. So, yeah, that was, yeah. So we basically had um, 11 contests over a five year period that we, we managed to collect data. And it's funny, I was just on a, a previous call there where we were, we're actually going to present this at a workshop in the, in the UK. And, you know, we didn't have a research question at the start of this at all. It's, it wasn't like a traditional, this is what, this is the hypothesis. This is what mm. we're going to do. And this is what we're going to find out. It was the fact that we had, we were fortunate to have access to a very good athlete who was willing to buy into the process. And so I decided, amazing, I'm going to collect loads of data on you. And, and that's what we did for five years. And then, you know, I sat down with two of my colleagues here, Professor James Morton and, and doc, uh, Dr. Carl Evans and, and that was where we decided, look, we've got some great data here that, yes, it's N of 1. Yes, it's a case study. It's not how everyone does it. But there's a real gap in the literature in this space. So let's put it out there and let's see how, it, you know, see if it's received well. 100%. I mean, it's, it's amazing to be able to get, you know, elite professional athletes because that's always a challenge, isn't it, of, of interpreting, you know, research and university level um, active fit individuals, but they're not the ones that are, playing at the at the top of their game or, or you know world champion boxers so it is really insightful to be able to see just that breadth of data over, over five years and you know if we even just look at things like a, a breakdown a macro breakdown of what a, a fighter like this might be consuming you know outside of that that seven days where they're going to be um, trying to make weight what does that roughly look like for a fighter like rocky yeah, so it, I mean, in the paper, we we put a kind of typical training day um, nutritional intake, but what what we were trying to do there was at best go a little bit above what his uh, resting metabolic rate would be. Now, bearing in mind that on most days he was well, yeah, on most days there was double training days, if not triple training days. So his RMR was in the region of between 1,900 to 2,000 calories. And then his, his typical energy intake was around 2,400. Mm -hmm. So we were, we were above RMR, but, you know, you, if a double training day is happening, he was definitely in an energy, um, negative energy balance. And so where possible, we, we tried to keep the carbohydrates relatively high, at kind of three gram per kilo so that he was getting the fuel that he needed for those training sessions. And that's where we would then manipulate what we would term and what, you know, most people have heard of is the three T's of nutrition. So time and type and total. And we were trying to be really specific about, okay, where does the three gram per kilo of carbohydrate get consumed? Let's, let's have it in and around those training sessions so that we're fueling those sessions correctly and we're recovering from them correctly. We then tried to keep protein, what I would term on the high side at 2.5 gram per kilo, bearing in mind the literature, you know, in and around with all the meta-analysis that have happened at 1.6 to 2.2 gram per kilo. Mm -hmm. um, and then we kept fat at one gram per kilo as well. So that was kind of the summary of the, the, the energy intake and the macros. And then we were just, 
it, it, quite boring and basic, but this is what the boxer wanted to eat and he was happy to, to consume. And so it was whey protein shakes, porridge oats, skimmed milk, banana. Um, and then we would bring in, um, I worked very closely with a food preparation company where they would then prepare and, and cook his lunch and dinner. Um, we'd get that sent to Rocky twice a week. So it was fresh. He didn't have to freeze it and he could just heat it up in the microwave. And then we'd finish just with some high protein snacks like um, salmon slices, cottage cheese, etc., and then um, casein protein pre-bed. So that that was a, a bit of a bland run through of nutritional intake. Of course, that did fluctuate throughout yeah. the channel. Nobody's going to eat that for eight weeks, but it, it was it was typical of what it would look like on a whole. And for Rocky, in that week into making weight. You know, and we'll circle back to the different camps here as this relates to sort of the fat overshooting concept. But, you know, for him, in terms of some of the strategies that you guys implemented to be able to make weight, can you, you know, highlight some of those for us and maybe contrast to some of the things you've seen in the in the industry in your time of, of some of the, you know, the old school or the strategies that are potentially harmful? Yeah, so, you know, before I started working with Rocky, I had no experience of combat sport athletes. And so I, I dug out the literature and I read the literature and, it was looking at Gary Slater, Louise Burke, Reed Real, some of Cole's stuff, some of James's stuff, and, and just seeing what the literature was saying. And, and then that's what I implemented with Rocky. Um, so in that final seven-day period, depending where his weight was, we always tried to get in between that 5 to 8% um, uh, of above his kind of weighing weight. And then when we were there, we would then fluctuate around with, okay, well, what tools are we going to use out of the toolbox? So it might have been, let's reduce the fiber intake that Rocky's going to consume. Let's bring uh, low residue intake into the diet. Mm -hmm. um, things like giving him, if he, if he wanted carbohydrates in the final 72, 48 hours leading into the weigh-in, then let's try and bring it in with food that actually weighs quite light. So... Mm -hmm. As an example, a 50 gram bag of Haribo might give you 100 grams of carbs, but it only weighs 50 grams. Whereas a jacket potato that might weigh 0.3 kilo would give you 50 grams of carbs. And so we were, we were then playing around with the weight of food that we were giving him to give him the energy. Um, and then, of course, you know, bringing down salt in the diet, having uh, less sodium going onto the food. Over in New York, we were linking up with restaurants to basically ask them to cook the, the lean turkey and the white rice with, with no salt. Yeah. So we just we just wanted it grilled and boiled in plain water. Um, Imagine you had to repeat that a few times because they're so used to cooking it with salt. It's like, no, we really yeah. want it without salt. Yeah. I mean, and this is where you talk about, you know, networking, right? So a good friend of mine and colleague, David Dunn, he's been to New York a lot with some of his fighters. And so he said, look, there's a restaurant 50 meters away from Madison Square Garden. They, they're Irish. They, they own it. They get it. They understand what the uh, boxers want. Yeah. So it, go in there and tell them that you're working with a boxer. Explain it to them and, and they'll do whatever you want. And so, nice. you know, even having that link, the, the, the week of Rocky's fight over there was, was outstanding. Um, so, yeah, we would, where possible, we would try and implement those little um kind of ways to reduce that um, that weight down, you know, by one, one to 1 1.5 uh, kilo or one, 2% of body weight. And then the last thing that we would ever, ever, ever start to bring out would then be fluid. So I would keep Rocky drinking fluid 
really all of the 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 week of of the weighing week. But if he was weighing in on a Friday at midday or one o'clock, it would only really be Thursday afternoon evening that we would start to bring fluid intake down. And then he would do normally, depending where his weight was, he might do a little sweat out the night before and then go to bed. And then he would do his, his last sweat out the morning of the weigh-in. And when I say sweat out, this is what, you know, having worked in team sport, I always bring this comparison into it because Rocky would normally lose around 2.5 kilos the morning of a weigh-in. Yeah. Now, that sounds like a lot to come out, but I've got rugby players that will lose four kilos in an 80-minute training session. Yeah. And no one at the club would ever look at them and go, oh, my God, we're dehydrating him on purpose. This is dangerous. He's sweating. You know, we can't do that. Of course he's accepted as part of it. Just just what happens. Same with basketball. Exactly. So the rugby player post training session gets on the scale. Wow, that was a that was a hot session. And what does he do? He, he rehydrates and he gets the electrolytes back into him. So, yes, Rocky would lose two point five kilo on the morning of weighing. But I guess because of my background in rugby, it, it was never anything that alarmed me because I was like, he's just sweating like a normal person sweats. So I was always comfortable with that. And then he would make the weight and then obviously we would go through with the, the rehydration and refuel strategy. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, obviously that's a, uh, you know, I mean, that's a great point in the sense of it's just like anybody else exercising and training, we're going to lose weight through sweat. Um, you know, having had Reed Reel on last season and talking about the MMA and a lot of the old school strategies that still circulate in, in mixed martial arts, you know, could you touch on in, in boxing what you've seen or what you still see in, in, in with various fighters or camps where that is taken to the next level of, of, of sweatsuits and excessive saunas or some of these things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, t- touch wood. I, I I'm, haven't worked with a boxer that kind of carries on doing that. Um, but of course, I, I know within the circle, it, it still happens. Um, you know, boxers... Um, there's still some that are a little bit uh, defensive to kind of buy into some of the literature and and the strategies that are out there because they they still want to do the old school culture of it. But yeah, look, we we still been scared of taking on something new, right? They just want to lean on their old, old habits. Yeah. Yeah. And um, exactly that. And sometimes, you know, there might be a little bit of pressure from the coach to say, look, we don't want to change anything this camp for whatever reason, but yeah, it's sweatsuits. It's, it's dehydrating themselves early. So I've seen that a few times where, you know, they might start on a Monday and start reducing intake of fluids then, which, of course, by the time you get to the weigh-in on the Friday, you you are already, you know, a prune that's been out in the sun for six days. So I've seen that. I've seen the sweatsuits um, sitting in the saunas for, you know, excessive amount of times. You know, saunas can be a a good way to help the body sweat. Yeah. I would say actually when they're they're done controlled at the right temperature, I don't oh. see a, a major issue with it, with it, but it's when it's when it becomes hours and hours and hours on end. Um, and then, you know, there, there are the, um, the kind of laxatives and things like that, that you still hear people taking, which again, is a shame that there's still athletes out there doing it because there's so many practitioners, good practitioners that are willing to help. Um, and, and I saw the other day, actually um, Aspen lads, um on on twitter again i think it was the fourth time in her career that she was really struggling on the scale to make the weight and it's a little bit distressing to see that i think sometimes um 
yeah, it's not it's not nice to watch, but you know, I, I just hope at some point she seeks a, a little bit of guidance around how to do it better and improve those strategies. But it still happens. We we're still seeing it, aren't we? Yeah, and it seems to really stand out now when you see that you know the more evidence based practices and what can be done to actually manage these things and when you still see somebody weighing in losing consciousness or, or whatnot i mean it, it's now it really seems to stand out even more so than maybe you know 10 20 years ago um yeah. but circling back to you know to your work with rocky you know you, you talk about how each or towards the beginning towards the end of his career i mean you know fat mass being a little higher fat free mass being lower in the various camps you know we see that in retired athletes obviously gaining more weights retired boxers after after their careers and Interestingly, you note in the paper that this isn't attributed to anything genetic either. This is and so, you know, what are some of the other factors that are at play here with potentially I mean, you touched on some of them, just the normal life of wanting to go out and have something to eat. But whether it's throughout that career or even the post career that might be playing a role in this whole uh, fat overshooting. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, and and I think the um, w- one of the, the areas that. I guess I know firsthand with Rocky was, was, you know, the, the, I only grin, but it's the lifestyle changes that happen. Um, you know, you've only got to speak to aunties and uncles who now find it very difficult to, to lose, lose that fat mass and, and stay leaner the older they're getting. And, and I, I, with, with Rocky, I don't think it's um, a genetics thing. I, I think there's just an element of lifestyle factors there. And that's, that's what we're seeing with a lot of the retired athletes. Training begins to drop. All of a sudden, they've had a career where they've been making weight their whole life. They want to go out and they want to enjoy themselves. And, and they, I guess, indulge on some of the vices that they couldn't do when they were an, an, a professional athlete. So there's definitely a, a lifestyle factor there where, um, you know, that that's having a contribution factor to the increase in fat mass. Um, but yeah, also, you, you know, you look at this, um, hyperphagic response that the, the body seems to go through, um, having followed a really strict and stringent, um, nutritional intake. And then this almost rebound hyperphagia that happens. And, um, you know, I think it's the, the Minnesota starvation study where they, they saw similar results in that, where following kind of a, a nutritional intake where, that the negative energy balance was there and then the refeed after that we we get this rebound hyperphagia and this overshooting of the fat mass so there's there's definitely something happening um when when that body or when that human rather goes back into that baseline state and we get that reshoot 100 percent, and it's interesting i mean even talking to eric trexler uh, you know a few seasons ago with regards to just athletes and how they do exercise i mean i think so many of us enjoy exercise it's embedded in our in our lifestyle and we know that it relates to good health outcomes whereas for certain athletes exercise can almost be a, a form of not necessarily punishment but it's always used as in terms of its intense fashion so i know in american football a lot of players after so many seasons of having to train that hard yeah the last thing they want to do is exercise because it's just connected to the intensity and the grueling efforts and everything um i imagine there might be a little bit of that in boxing what do you think in terms of just you know guys having to go through those the rigors over over decades of these intense intense sessions yeah i, I think you're exactly right and i'm i'm just looking at the the area in the paper that I, we kind of wrote about it here and kind of miles and chan uh in their 2020 paper they they talk about the central feature of the hypothesis that weight cycling predisposes obesity 
is that during each weight cycle, which is what you're talking about there, mm-hmm. the, amount, the amount of fat regained is greater than that previously lost. And, you know, the phenomenon of fat overshooting is thought to be driven by that rebound hyperphagia that primarily occurs in the attempt to restore the fat-free mass. So, it, you know, it's it's a fascinating area. And, and I, I look at some of the other boxers that I work with who I've got uh, Chris Billum-Smith now who cruiserweight level i think the the heaviest he ever goes is about 100 kilo Mm -hmm. and he weighs in at 90.6 so he will go through a period of probably four kilos of acute weight loss in that final week so really he's only ever at best six kilos above what he needs to be cutting in the final week if that makes sense and and that that's at his work much delta there right Correct. And, and the way that I always look at, if you look at the figures that we presented in the paper, we've got these, you know, it kind of, we enter at the start of the camp at, at 84, then it goes down to 82, and then we have this big drop and then bang, it goes back up. Mm. And so that almost roller coaster effect or, or ECG on a, on a kind of figure, mm. the way that I describe it with Chris Billum-Smith when I was talking to him about it was that you still have that, but the amplitude of your peaks and troughs is is far less. So we're still getting these little rises and and peaks throughout the camp. But isn't it interesting how you seem to stay relatively in shape the whole of your 12-month year and we don't get this fat overshooting once you've come out of the camp? You might put on three or four kilos, but then he's back where his baseline is. And and I think that is the golden ticket for these, these combat sport athletes who want to compete multiple times in a year surely you're better off just not putting your body through so much stress and where possible trying to maintain three four five six kilos above your weight so that you've only got to lose that when you go into the camp and if you look at some of the professionals that are still fighting now Canelo Mayweather okay end of his career Pacquiao end of his career but, you know, they they pretty much stayed in shape the whole of their career and were on weight whenever they needed to be on weight. And, you know, they they come out of a camp and they don't really have this fat overshooting. They might put on a couple of kilos, but it's nothing drastic, right? Yeah. Yeah, it would seem that the, the greater the delta with that fat overshoot, the, you know, the greater the hyperphagia, the greater that appetite would be just from almost an evolutionary standpoint of being in these periods of starvation where then the, yeah. the brain's yeah. basically saying, hey, when I get my chance, we're going to make sure we're we're... We're getting enough fuel in here. And, you know, if we look at this from a real 30,000 foot view in terms of the actual associations, the sport as a whole, you know, obviously scheduling, as, as you know, is in the boxing world and the fight world is, is quite random. You know, are the things that some of these associations need to look at more seriously with being able to support athletes over a career? I mean, obviously difficult to implement all in one shot, but it's it's it does become a question, doesn't it, of, of how often or how much preparation should boxers really have? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's a two-pronged approach, if I'm honest, Mark. I think one, it's it's on the athlete. Um, and and yeah, I do think the scheduling of bouts, you know, I, we had Rocky, he had six weeks' notice for the world title fight. Wow. So all, all you know, and, and fair play to his trainer at the time, because his trainer was constantly saying to him, stay ready, stay ready, stay ready. And so he was. But yeah, six weeks notice, if he was 17 kilos above his weight, like he was in one of his camps, you're never making the weight ever. So it was, um, well, you might make it, but it's not going to be safe and it's probably yeah. not something that I want to be part of. 
not going to be feeling good on fight night. Yeah. So there's, um, I, I think on the fighter, it's, it's stay in shape and stay where you are and stay where you need to be. But yeah, I think the, the, the scheduling about, you know, the, the federations and stuff could do more about having more time for the athletes there. Um, so yeah, yeah. I would say two pronged approach really. Nice. Well, listen, if we, uh, if we take a minute here to pivot a little bit and talk about something else that's been keeping you busy over the last uh, year, 18 months or so, you know, writing a new book all about performance nutrition. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you decided to write that book? Yeah. Um, thanks for the segue into this. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really passionate about our industry and, and um, look, I, I six, seven years ago was, was a student doing his master's. And, and had a career goal of working for the national team and that was at England rugby. So I, I've always had that vision and goal. Um, and, and I quite early on knew what my path looked like to get there. So I, I knew that if this was where I want to be, this is what I've got to do in the five years before that to try and make that a reality. Um, and recently I've, I've had quite a few, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure everyone has this herself, but, students reaching out on LinkedIn, just asking me about the career, you know, what advice have you got? Um, you know, what did you do when you were studying? Is there anything extra I can do outside of academics, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, I was getting lots and lots of lots of similar questions. And so I thought to myself, look, I'm going to make the most of this. I'm going to open my network. I'm going to speak to people that I know in the industry, colleagues of mine who are all working what I would deem as successful practitioners right now in their own right. And um, I'm, I'm going to interview them. And so I did, I've interviewed 10 um, individuals, boys, boy or male, female from different clubs, organizations, sports, uh, Australia, England. And I've asked them the questions that people were asking me because I can only give one side of the story. I can only tell you how I did it, but let's see how everyone else does it as well and see whether there's comp, uh, common themes that we can begin to bucket and lo and behold there is there's some real clear themes and things that people can do outside of the traditional I'm going to go and get a master's that I think would put them leaps above some of the other colleagues on, on their course that are studying the same course as them so that that is basically the, the essence of the book and then I, I've given some views and, and thoughts and reflections on each one of the interviews um, and look, I'm not just saying it, but I, I genuinely learn about each person in more depth. And also I took some real tips away for myself to, to go away and implement in my own practice. And so I was going to say, what were what some of maybe the surprises or the insights that, that, that caught you off guard? Um, some of the things that really resonated, you know, in, in some of those interviews? Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that, um, that most, if not all of the people said and this sounds so simple and easy, but how many of us get it right was just being a good person. And that is very, very like vague. 30,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> don't what, be a dickhead. Yeah, but right, that's that's the all blacks mentality. You know, don't don't be a, a an annoying person, just be a good person. And then how you define being a good person will be different. How I define it might be different to you, but then if you can stick to that every single day that you go into the organization, I, I, I think you'll get far with it. And I, I look at some practitioners and some students that might be struggling to get jobs or 
you know, they, they've, they got a job, but then lost it because of whatever reason. And, and sometimes you peel it back and you think, well, were you a good person? Were you a good bloke or a good woman? So that, that's one thing that has definitely come out. Um, and then like the mentor side of it, a lot of the people I've spoke to have had mentors in the industry and they've had people that have guided them and shown them the ropes and said, look, this was the mistake that I've made. Don't make that mistake. I'll help you not make it. And this is how you can become better. And so and James Morton, Professor James Morton summarized it great. He was like, if there's people in the industry that have got more experience than you and they've made the mistakes already, why wouldn't you want to learn from them? Why wouldn't you want to tap into their brains and, and ask them their advice and their questions and get them to check and challenge what you're doing to make sure that it's of the level and standard it needs to be? So that's, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the premise of the book. Um, my plan is that this will be volume one, and then we're going to bring out loads of the books, and I'm just going to keep interviewing different practitioners across the world because, like I said, I've only got one journey, and it's, it's only the way that I've done it. It's not how everyone else does it. So Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to that. When's the, is the book out now, James? When, does it, uh, when can folks get their hands on that? It's not out yet. No, it's with uh, the the editor is finishing up now. Then it's going to a formatter, and then um, I'll be doing pre-sales on it. So, yeah, just keep an eye out for some of the social links that go out for that. But fingers crossed, Touchwood, it should be out before Christmas. Nice, nice. I'll definitely include all those links in there. And you know, if we now segue into your current role, you know, Bristol Bears, obviously your your PhD work in in rugby. You know, could you? only a few months on the job i i think at the moment can you give us a little glimpse into what a typical day might look like for you these days yeah so yeah i i mean i'm in in the club kind of uh full time which is yeah great great role great position and and what i must say about bristol bears is that they're a fantastic club to be part of the i've only been there a few months but the staff and players have all been very welcoming and, and they're a club with clear vision and ambition. And, and that's what excites me about working in that environment. Um, but typical day to day for me would be checking in with the chef, making sure everything's okay from a food point of view. The chef is outstanding as well. So there's not too many issues there. Nice. But, um, and, then, and then some real education with the players. So, um, you know, the classics around fueling for match play, like are they genuinely fueling aligns to the evidence-based literature right now um I, I in all of my time in sport at the moment in my short career there's not many athletes that that genuinely genuinely do it consistently week in week out and and so that's a real area that we're going after making sure that the players firstly understand the top line level of the literature but then also importantly how that they, how they can do it how do they hit six gram per kilo or eight gram per kilo what does it look like and how can you do it every day? And then, of course, the recovery side of stuff with the players. So there's been, yeah, there's been some uh, some short snippet presentations around um, fueling and recovery. And we're just trying to bring the education up for the players and then making sure that uh, body compositions and the um, nutritional intake in and around training is where it needs to be. That's um, always a fascinating thing, isn't it? With, you know, obviously being able to raise a level of education, um, and then, you know, athletes like any person are busy in their lives with demands and, and talking heads. And so the idea of having some simple rules or heuristics for them to just so that their natural their, their natural default becomes more towards what you want them to be doing rather than some of the old behaviors that they have before. Like, can you talk a bit about 
that idea of simplicity or, or having some some kind of simple rules that, that can allow you to, to be able to raise that playing field for the athletes? Yeah, so there's, there's two things here that I'll speak about. One is the education and, and the why. And then the second is diet plan versus lifestyle change. And, and so um, the education and the why, you know, I'm, I'm a student myself and I, I always will be. And I, I'm really passionate about people understanding why they're doing something, because I genuinely believe that if a player understands why protein intake is important for his recovery after a training session, you don't have to sell it to him because he understands why it's important. Whereas I've been there in the past where you just say to the player, get that shake down here. And they don't really know why they're taking it. They don't understand what it's doing for the body, how it can help with muscle recovery. So in my one-to-ones, I will pick off their, you know, what is your current understanding of leucine? Do you understand what leucine is at all? And if they don't, then I'll explain it to them in a very simple term. And what you find then, or what we found very quickly is that they, they just, they, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing them to take shakes anymore. You don't have to ask them to make sure that they're increasing intake of rocket leaves a day before a game because they understand, oh, there's an element of nitrate in rocket. I get it. Like I understand yeah. why you want me to have it. So the education and the why has been, has been brilliant. And um, Graham Close has always said to me, you should be able to answer three levels of why. So why am I taking a protein shake? Why is it important? And why or how is it going to help me? Yeah. If you can answer that with an athlete, majority of the times after three why questions, they're going to be brought into the process. So that's really important. And then the other side of it was um, how many athletes will sit down with us and say, can you write me a diet plan? And I've never seen, apart from boxers who, who might stick to it for like the eight-week camp because yeah. of that weigh-in that they need to hit, I actually think what we're better off doing is, is looking at current nutritional behaviours and, and asking them what they, what they think they do well now and then asking them what they think they can do better. And then it becomes a, a simple exercise of let's tweak little areas of your current lifestyle and just improve them slightly so okay at the moment you're having dinner and you're not having anything before bed why is that well i don't you know i don't think i need anything and then you educate them and say this is why it would be important to have something protein-based pre-sleep they they understand the why and then you've tweaked a nutritional behavior there by saying right let's now make it a routine that after dinner we're having this before bed that's not putting them on a diet plan that's just adding and tweaking something that they're doing okay already and just improving it for the better. And that's where I found the biggest wins with players. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to go into that rugby club and tell players that they can or can't do this. I'm going to explain the reason why this might be better, why this might not be helping your inflammation at the moment, and what I would suggest to be the solution. Um, so that, yeah, yeah. it's so great to see the, the the trend towards this because you know for so long it's been those sort of diet templates that, that players get and it's you know it's sort of like catching the fish for them if you will right they're not really understanding how their behaviors are, are impacting this whole story and um, yeah. you know to your point you get guys who just rock up to you know, whether it's basketball American football um, I'm sure sports over here like like football or players will just have, you know, a croissant for breakfast and then roll up to training and you start to see, wait a minute, if we could just correct this pattern of, of this part of the day or this part of the day, we actually start to get towards 
some of these totals that we're after or the frequency that we're after. So, you know, yeah. that's, that's really cool to see. And uh, imagine your players, to your point, like the compliance is a lot better as well, isn't it? When you start nudging these certain, these certain lifestyle patterns. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And there's, you know, we've all seen the book Atomic Habits by James Clear and some of us would have read it, some of us might not, but, you know, building better habits and, and normal behaviours or better behaviours with athletes is key. And I think it's really important as well, you know, everyone will do it their own way. But what I've learned, certainly in my career at the moment, is that everyone will learn different. So the, the scientific figure that you pull up on a screen might land really well with 30% of the athletes because they love it. They love the data. They, they want to know what the literature says. 30% of the players might not care about the literature. They, they trust you because you're in the job that you're in. And so you've just got to tell them, like, you know, don't show me the figure. Tell me what protein is doing and then tell me what I need to do. And I, I trust you. And then the other 30% might not want to be told what to do at all. They might not want the literature, but you've just got to subtly give them uh, an option and say, look, why don't you try this? I think this might be better for you and let them make the decision themselves. Um, because I've also worked with tricky athletes that if you, if you tell them to do something, then yeah, the defensive, defensive wall comes up. Who are you to tell me to do something? Whereas if you give them the option, look, if it was me in your position, this is what I would be doing. But ultimately you, you decide what goes in your body. And, and in those situations, more, more times than not, I've seen those players begin to gravitate to the behavior that you want them to do. Yeah, it's amazing how that 30% it really all, is all about the, 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 the mental, psychological side of just finding the right way to be able to connect with them versus the actual, to your point, driving home of the information or, or pushing something on them. Because like you said, their first response is to back away. And now, now yeah, you're creating yeah. more distance than you are uh, yeah. between the practitioner and the athlete. And it's all about, and we've all, we've all heard it, haven't we, you know, about flexing your style and being able to um, adapt in in your situation that you're you're in and for, for what I try and do with with my guys anyway is really just get to know them first like I, I want to know what you like I want to know what what gets you out of bed in the morning I want to know what team you support and and getting to know the person first building that level of trust and rapport it becomes a lot easier to then say look by the way mate i think you you'd be better off having this shake here because this is how it could help you with your recovery or your fueling or whatever it might be um so yeah you know i think um we've heard previously or i spoke previously about the the kind of trust equation that graham close said to me and um you know i, I always try and follow that where, wherever possible with with athletes I was going to say, it's always amazing how even in a 10 minute conversation, you could spend nine and a half minutes talking about who they support, family, friends, all these things. And then the last 30 seconds could be given that little direction that you want to give to an athlete. And that's actually done the job versus sometimes I think we're so used to thinking about having to use all that time to inform and educate. Yeah. But to your point, to that to that 30% of, of athletes that do struggle with that, it, we're better off spending most of our time just, just connecting with the person and then trying yeah. to to leave some hints and, and nudge behaviors in the right direction. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's tremendous. Well, listen, uh, James, I, I know you're a busy guy. I don't want to take up more of your time here. Uh, you know, where can people stay connected with all your fantastic work and, uh, you know, and keep tabs on, on when the book drops? 
Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter, just my name, uh, James Moorhen, um, and then on Instagram at Moorhen Performance. Um, and then I've also got the website, moorhenperformance.com. So, yeah, always happy to, to reach out and, and speak to people, uh, excuse me, speak to people. Um, and, yeah, if they drop me a line on, on any of them, I'll, I'll get back to them. And then, yeah, the book, there is a sign-up tab on the website and Instagram uh, page. And so we've had 200 people sign up and they're interested in buying it, which is great. Uh, and I'll, I'll keep people updated via that link, yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, we'll include all those, all those links as well. And uh, once again, man, appreciate the time. No worries. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. For the full video interview, as well as key clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff is a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.